0: To J Play the Playism Podcast. I am Playism's senior marketing manager, Nain Ramachandran and with me, as always, I've got
1: uh, Dan Star. I am the senior content manager for
0: Playism. I think it's funny that you say senior content manager when there's actually nobody under under you.
1: Yeah, there's nobody under me, and it actually changed. My title changed without me even knowing it. Uh, the next time I got business cards, at one point, suddenly it was just different.
0: I mean, it makes. I mean, I I you know I talked to you know our department about like what was going to happen because we were you know, increasing in size, like, you know, the whole team and everything. Yeah, And it made sense for me because I have like two people under me. But the fact that you went from content, what, content manager to senior content manager, is that what happened?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: And with nobody under you and you're still doing all the content by yourself.
1: Yeah, nothing changed at all. It, I just got a new title and I didn't even know that I had a new title. I probably <laughs> had got a, business cards. No, actually, it's funny because I didn't really look at my business cards because why would they be different from every other time that I've gotten them? So, right. I think I had the new title for like three months before I actually noticed.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is episode six of uh, J-Play. Man, it's been a long time since our last episode. I figure it's been so long, in fact, that we should probably do like a little intro on in what Playism is. I am I figure that it's probably a couple people listening in who may not know who we are. Right. And, you know, the last time we
1: that we did the podcast, it was with the Bloodstained Kickstarter and yeah, yeah. there were kind of a lot of repeat listeners with that. And, you know, it was was a whole, it was kind of like a series. And so, yeah, I think kind of semi-starting afresh is a good idea.
0: Okay. So, I mean, just, you know, just for archiving and stuff, we're going to have those first five episodes that were part of the Bloodstained Kickstarter. We're going to have that in the episode list. So if you listeners out there have not checked out those episodes, definitely do so. The Kickstarter's over, but those are really fun episodes. We had a great time doing it with Ben Judd.
1: Yeah, and there's some killer interviews, too. Robbie Belgrade was a really good one. Yeah, that was Um, great. Dan Moore from Fangamer. That was a fantastic interview. A lot of really good stories in there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, it's so funny. Playism has been around for uh, five years, six years, uh, but I feel like we do this all the time, which is what is Playism? Because I feel like despite the fact that we're doing a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of people still don't know about us. And we kind of do the whole introduction, rig and roll pretty regularly. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Dan, why don't you tell us what is Playism? So
1: Playism at base is a, an international publisher and localization house. So we localize games and help indie developers bring those games to other markets through both our own platform, which is a web-based portal in both English and Japanese.
0: Which is Playism.jp and Playism-games.com, respectively.
1: Right. And also through first-party platforms like Steam and PlayStation, and in Japan, soon to be Wii U and 3DS.
0: Yeah, too. And also, you know, we're, I mean... I don't think it's... It's probably not a secret. I mean, like, we are interested in doing Xbox One. It's something that we've been talking about for a while. Yeah. But we're not doing that yet.
1: Not quite yet, yeah. So... But essentially, yeah, we hmm. we bring games to other markets. We have an indie focus.
0: Right, right. So we are... You know, I always say in the rigmarole, we're an indie-focused digital distribution publisher. But indie focus suggests that we don't do indie sometimes, and that's actually not true. Like, we do nothing but indie. I mean, like, I would say, like, maybe one or two titles are kind of, like, on the line. Yeah, yeah. But like, we are almost entirely indie. That's our, that's our thing. That's our wheelhouse. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, I mean, you know, the big guys don't quite need the help that they need in order to get in other places. Uh, you know, they might need some kind of services or something like that. They might need, they might need publisher support, but with indies, it really, feel, it really does feel like you're helping somebody out.
0: Right. I really like uh, working with a lot of the, all the developers really, that we work with both in Japanese side and the and Western side it's been a super unique experience working with all of them. They all have their own unique issues and wants and needs and interests and the things, where they want to take their game and what, what platform they want to put it on. Plus like, you know, I've got this problem and that problem, but I also have this thing that's a huge boon for us. So it's, it's always, I feel like every day is different in some way. Yeah, totally.
1: That's one of the, I think the benefits like on a personal level of working with not just publishing, but with localization as well. Because... The content of the text really matters. Right. Every game has a different tone. Every game has a different setting. It has different characters, different writing styles. No, that's, so that's it, absolutely true, yeah. Right. And it, it makes every project, you know, totally different. The way you, and of course, like, and this is something that people don't even think about usually. Of course, oh, you know, to translate something well, you have to, you know, look at the intent or look at the the tone or look at, you know, what what are the characters expressing and stuff like that. And that that's something I think everybody is is pretty well familiar with, but with games there are also like systems that you have to consider. Well, what do you mean by that? So, for example, how the text is being used. We are. This isn't this isn't any kind of secret. We're we're working. Well, I hope I, I hope I pronounced this correctly. I've only ever seen this this developer's name. I'll make I'll
0: it. make sure the presentation police take you to jail. <laughs> if you don't do this properly. <laughs> you're you're on the line here. You're you're being recorded actually. So we have evidence if you do it wrong. Maybe maybe I should just get up and walk out of the room. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hamamont Games? Okay. The developers of uh, Tropico and Victor Vran?
0: Right, right, right.
1: Uh, we're helping them to bring Victor Vran to Japan. And, you know, being a hack and slash game, there's obviously tons of loot, and the loot tables, you know, it, it puts together, you know, certain attributes, kind of like Diablo does. Right, right. Uh, like
0: prefix, center part, and then suffix, and it's all based, those are all the modifiers that affect, like, what kind of weapon it is? Right. Okay.
1: And so something that people might not consider is the fact that, you know, you're, in English, you're putting those things together based on word order. English is a very word order heavy language, you know, even in adjectives, you know, certain, certain adjectives in a list of adjectives, certain ones will always come first. Right, like certain, small certain brown certain cat
0: versus brown small cat. Right, yeah. The color is
1: always going to come in that position. Right. Uh, it can't be otherwise.
0: But that's all feeling, right? I mean, like, obviously, there's there's real rules around it. And, mm. you know, I'm sure you've seen images of it, like, what, what types of adjectives go first in order. Mm. And, you know, we all kind of try to follow them. But, I mean, I don't think I ever learned the order. It just sounded right, you know?
1: Yeah, I had never seen the order diagrammed until I started teaching English.
0: Right. Oh, and, and actually, to 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 preface what we're saying, it's not that we just never saw it. It's especially... Surprising that neither of us ever looked into it because we're both English majors.
1: Yeah, that's not the kind of stuff. I even studied grammar for editing in college and that stuff doesn't come up. I can diagram a tree of a sentence and, you know, I can associate everything with the way it's supposed to go and like what is modifying and everything like that. But even in, even at that level, at like a very deep grammatical level, native speakers don't think about adjective order in that way.
0: It's all feeling. It's all feeling. It just sounds right or it sounds wrong. And I'm sure even if you've never worked in localization or you never really think about English as Mm. a job or a thing that you're ever going to do past communication, basic communication, Mm. maybe some, you know, writing a blog or whatever. Mm. It's all based on feeling. That doesn't sound right. Or that even you look at the spelling of a word, that doesn't look right. That doesn't sound right. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes you go the wrong direction, right? It's like, like, first, like judgment. You look at Judgment, you're like, that looks wrong. And it turns out, no, Judgment does not have an E after that G. That is wrong. That's actually a wrong spelling.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, with Victor Ron specifically, there are, in English, you're going to have certain slots where the text plugs in. And in Japanese, the order is going to be different. And you have to do some sanity checks to make sure that everything makes sense.
0: What do you mean by sanity check? I mean, like, okay, so I know what you mean by sanity check. But for the folks at home who are going to be listening to this, what is a sanity check? Uh, you have to... You have to actually check the way the
1: translation plays out mm-hmm. in the game. Right. When you apply the system to the words and the text like appears in the game. Right. Does it come out correctly? Does it all check out in the end? Um, okay. Sanity checks actually like a more accurate use of that phrase would be when the language use, or it doesn't even have to be language use, but when a system is supposed to produce a result that makes the game move forward, mm-hmm. then you have to do sanity checks to make sure that you can progress all the way through the game. Using the system,
0: right, right, okay, gotcha. Um,
1: so you have to you have to check to make sure, like, okay, well, these certain keyframes are supposed to show up, and they're not showing up when I do this part of the game. So you'd have to do some like some balancing in order to make sure that you are able to complete the game.
0: Right. So I guess uh, I guess in this case, like in the case of Victor Ron this would be a sort of like, outside case, it's not really a sanity check because you can still proceed without you know that stuff working. But without that stuff working, you don't really get an intimate understanding of the loot table and you don't really take advantage of what is probably one of the biggest systems in the game.
1: Right, right, right. And it's entirely possible that if you don't do this debugging check, then the item descriptions could come out really, really wonky looking.
0: Or hilarious. Or hilarious, wonky and hilarious. Yeah. So yeah, so that's I guess that's basically like what we do. I mean, I'm I'm marketing. So, you know, I work mostly with making sure that media outlets are aware of our releases that I go to events and, you know, hawk our wares at uh, events, which we're gonna talk about later, we are gonna talk about PAX Prime, we just came back from there. And, you know, generally, like both of us are working on making sure that the one that the Western games that we help get localized in the Japanese get released in the best condition they can be, and to making sure that the Japanese titles that we work with one get localized, but that really is our wheelhouse. We've been doing that for ages now. I have always thought that we've done a really good job of the English releases, but making sure that they sell on whatever platform that they get released on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's I guess that's playism. Mm-hmm. Um, now that we've got that out of the way, so people are like, okay, all right. I understand what these guys are all about. We can get to the subject, the first topic of today's podcast, which has absolutely nothing to do with our job. Zero to do with our job. Uh, <laughs> now that we've spent, uh, what, 10 minutes talking about our jobs, throw that information away because this is not useful for the next topic. We're talking about what we are playing. which is you know, I mean, we didn't really do that during the first five episodes. We did it for a little bit, like maybe five minutes on the first five episodes. Five minutes spread across three people, yeah. And so it was we didn't get real deep into we it. We didn't all. really get deep into stuff and I understood. Like people wanted the you know, a lot of people were saying, like, hey, we want to hear more bloodstain stuff, and I totally understand. But now we've got free reign, there's no more, you know, there's no more bloodstained campaigns, so buckle up, you're gonna hear all about what the games were playing and perhaps not playing. Yeah, not playing, so unfortunately. what? Well, why don't we why don't we the that? What are you not playing? I am not playing Middle
1: Gear Solid Five. Why is that? And I, I know, because I was with you. Yeah. At both stores. Yeah. Where they did not have the game, and they it wasn't the funny yeah it's not like they don't
0: have it they don't have it on PS4 right so there are plenty this is really interesting actually because PS4 sales have been kind of like if you go to forums people are like oh you know it's selling Gangbusters in America and Europe but it's not really selling in Japan yeah and I think like please don't quote me on this I'm pretty sure it's it's somewhere around 1.3 mil uh, units in Japan right now Uh, I think it's a little bit higher than that but yeah it's
1: it's It's something around there which is
0: which is considerably lower than the what 20 million 30 million units circulating. The U.S. Or the rest whatever. Of, the, of the world. Yeah. yeah, right. So, you know, it is a small number. It's a small country, too, but... Um, yeah, it's still 100 million people. Still 100 million
1: people, right. So... A third of the population of the U.S. Right. And it's the home territory for Sony. Right. And a lot of people would be like, well, that, shouldn't that be a recipe for immediate success? You know, they'd expect... Obviously, everybody always associates Japan with electronics and, you know, with the future.
0: Right, which it totally is not.
1: That is the common misunderstanding. Yeah. But yeah, the, really the truth is that PlayStation 2 had a slow start here. Yeah. PlayStation 3 had a slow start here and now PlayStation 4 has had a slow start. And a big part of that is, well, there are a couple of reasons, especially for PlayStation 2 and 3, the previous generation had a lot of titles on it. Right. Right. And people were still satisfied playing those. And especially for the switch over from PS2 to 3. There were still games coming out on PS2. Correct. Right. Well, the same thing
0: happened with Vita, right? Where there were PSP games still coming out yes. a year into the Vita's life. Yeah.
1: And yeah, that has a tremendous effect on, on the sales for the new console. People don't necessarily want to spend the money, and they're still satisfied with the quality of the old generation. And as far as like, games that are in Japanese for Japanese people to play, there's a fraction of those out in the States as there are in, in Japan. Right, right. Like, Japanese games made here in Japan, so few of them come out in the States. Right, For exactly. PS2, it's phenomenal. You see, uh, if you look out, you're like, oh, okay, I think I have a good grasp on what came out on PS2 because I played a lot of them in the States. Uh, if you weren't playing imports,
0: you really played, like, 10% of what came out in Japan. That's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess, you know, going back to what we were talking about, like, what made this so So surprising for us is that, you know, we walked into the store, I had, you know, pre-ordered my collector's edition of MGS5, and what I expected to see was that the collector's editions were out, and there would be regular copies at least to pick up. Now, the game store that's like a block away from my apartment, it characteristically sells out of stuff pretty quickly. Like, a release date sells out of stuff. Yeah, if you don't pre-order, then it's probably not there. Right, and then you have to wait like two or three days, and it'll maybe come back. Like, Splatoon, it was like a week before I was able to get a copy. Yeah. So... I was really surprised to see, not only were the PS4 copies of MGS5 out of stock, but there were plenty of PS3 copies. Yeah, there were tons. Plenty of PS3 copies, and I saw, I'm not kidding you, I don't know if you noticed, I saw four PS3 collector's editions just sitting on the shelf behind the counter. Yeah. Just in a row. Yeah. Like, clearly, you know, we were talking about this when we were walking back from the store, Mm -hmm. uh, you looking particularly dejected. (laughs) Uh, I'd be truly curious to find out. You know, was it that they shipped more PS3 units, like considerably more, like thinking that they were just, they would need that many yeah. and less PS4 units under, you know, underestimating the amount of units that they would sell, or was it actually a comparable number between both?
1: Yeah, I really wonder. It's something else I plan on checking. In, in Japan, we're actually really lucky. Retail sales get reported. It's just public information. Yes. Yeah. And there are some sites that you can check. Game of Data Hakubutsukan. If you Google that in Japanese, uh, if you can do that.
0: Yeah, it's very helpful. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Then that will turn up some excellent data on retail sales in Japan. And I really want to check out not only like MGS5 sales, but I want to know like in the last week, what's the changeover for consoles? Right. Because I want to know like, is this game selling like hardware or not? Because I get the uh, it's feeling actually it's, moving units. Yeah, I get this feeling that it's it's entirely possible they they might have they might be selling enough PS4s that that's the reason that they're selling out of copies of the game. Maybe they ship plenty of them, right? And they just happen to be selling uh selling hardware too, which would be ideal. I I think it would be awesome because the PS4 is such a good system, and I want. I want Japanese people to to get on board with it so that
0: Sony can support it even more. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. So, I do have to ask though cuz we it is a segment called what are we playing and not what are we not playing. Dan's very sensitive about spoilers. Like, he doesn't like spoilers and he's far more sensitive than I am about them. It's I actually generally pretty unreasonable how much I hate spoilers. Well, that's the thing is that I like I recognize
1: that and I can't help it still.
0: Well, yeah, I mean like for me, you know, I'm I am unusual as well in that like if somebody says, hey, do you want me to tell you what happens at the end? I'm like, I'll see it. But sure, just tell me. I don't really care. It's not going to spoil my enjoyment of it. So I, I don't mind spoilers, though I don't go seeking them out. Yeah, if yeah. somebody tells me something, I'm not like, oh, you've ruined my experience now. So I have to ask you, I want to talk about just some things in MGS5 okay. that have, one, nothing to do with the story yeah, other than general pacing okay, and some totally publicly known gameplay things. Okay. Like, sure. Is that an issue for you?
1: Nah, I don't really care. Okay, okay. I think, so, I that's fine,
0: yeah. Sure. I mean, you are aware that Metal Gear Solid is a stealth game. And you, oh, you sneak. spoiler, <laughs> man. Come on. So, okay, so the interesting thing that I found with MGS5, and I've told you before, I didn't play a whole lot of Peace Walker, so this is kind of a new experience for me playing this type of Metal Gear game.
1: Right, with missions as a format instead of acts.
0: Right. So what I wanted to actually, this kind of occurred to me yesterday, but I feel like... At, to some extent, I'm making the game harder for myself by playing the game, at least to my ability, like incorrectly. Uh-huh. And so this is coming from somebody who is a huge Metal Gear fan. And I was talking to our common friend, uh, Josh Weatherford, who's over at Concept now, about this today, in fact. And I feel like the game rewards me for doing things that are very un-Metal Gear. I actually saw your tweets about this, so I know where you're going already. Yeah, it's unfair, like, but. it was just kind of weird, because I was in this mission, and I have to go kill these, like, three commanders or whatever, and I go infiltrate at nighttime, I do all the things that you would do in a Metal Gear game, you know, I scope it out, I make sure that I mark every person there, I start watching Roots, I'm sneaking in, I'm like, man, this is really hard, I can't get in there. And I would keep getting spotted, I would be like, okay, restart the checkpoint, I want to sneak in, I want to do this properly, I want to go in there and like break their necks and just sneak out and then no one will be the wiser. You know, at one point I was just like, this is taking a long time, this mission is taking a really long time, but like, this mission is supposed to be pretty short, because I've also got like 20 other missions to do. So instead, what I did was I was like, okay, all these three commanders start off in this one room. And then if I take too long, they all get in their jeeps and they go to their different villages, which doesn't end the mission, but they're all at different ends of the map. So it takes forever to go find them. Yeah. So what do I do? I did the silliest thing. I pulled out my silenced machine gun, uh, snuck around the one like street that I was going down before, went into the water, out of the water, so that nobody would see me, slammed the door open so that the commander would see me, shot them both in the head, and just ran for the hills. <laughs> and it was, like the, it was the dirtiest way to finish that mission— and I got an A. Like that, at the end of it, I was like, I, "This game is almost rewarding me for not playing it like Metal Gear." And I don't think that's a fault of the game, but it's perhaps a fault of the way that I think I perceive a Metal Gear game to be. Yeah. Like the games have expanded so much in how you can play them. Mm. And you know, like even in four, like MGS three and four, Kojima was talking about how like, oh, we've expanded the way you can play it. You can play it as a more action oriented game. But in the end, MGS4 was still a sneaking game. You still like you could play it as an action game, but you're also gonna fight an entire fighting force. Octo Camo
1: was one of the, the most publicized features of the game. Right, right. Like the whole point of Octo Camo is,
0: is stealth, right? Yeah, right. And again, you can play it as an action game, but in the end, you are rewarded for playing in stealth. Yeah. And that's how Metal Gear is sort of customarily been from one to four. Yeah. But in this, I find that I'm actually being rewarded for doing some crazy stuff that really I shouldn't be able to do and get away with.
1: Now, this is actually the embarrassing part, because I did play Peace Walker, and mm-hmm. I don't recall if it was like that or not. I feel like even if they were had been going for a more action-oriented gameplay style, it wouldn't have come across quite as well because it was on PSP and you don't have two sticks.
0: Right, right.
1: So I want to say it wasn't like this, but I also would like to be able to say, well, you're not playing as uh, Solid
0: Snake. Well, I guess then MGS3 should be the indicator if not... Right, which still had some action I mean it still had more more lethal stuff the first time he holds a knife instead of just choking people out. Right, yeah. You know, so it was it was already showing like, oh, this is like a different character. It did
1: have a a broadly expanded CQC system as well.
0: Right. Right. So that's the thing, is it it just seems weird to me. Like I'm not again, this is not a knock against the game, but it just feels kind of weird that like When I'm kind of slop shot, running in, shooting everybody and then picking up that one thing I need. And then, but it's just surprising to me that I can like walk in, do some stuff, then run really, really far away, really fast. Because by the way, you can sprint and there is no limit. So you can sprint from one of the met. noticed that
1: in Ground Zeroes, yeah.
0: Yeah, you can just sprint forever if you want to. Mm -hmm. And sprint and then just dive, land in some grass and Mm -hmm. let, you know, things cool over. As long as you got people marked, you can Mm -hmm. see where they are and they are very far away. By the time they get to where you are, you would have called in your helicopter and extracted and the mission's done. Mm -hmm. So it's just surprising I can do that. Yeah, that is really interesting. Maybe I should go back and
1: play uh, MGS3 and see, like, do I feel like that the action trend was already strong at that point? Because even if it's not this case, I think it would be interesting if this were a difference, if the gameplay were a difference in the personalities between Solid Snake and Naked Snake. Right. If Big Boss and Snake are just different in that way.
0: That, yeah, that's like, that's the delineation. It's like the type of person that they are. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like, Solid Snake was like, never Solid as wasn't, bloodthirsty. Like, yeah, he's
1: not as bloodthirsty. You know, he went to be in with his dogs in Alaska. He didn't even want to be a soldier anymore. Where Big Boss wants to be the soldier. Yeah. He's Big Boss. His right? life is the soldier
0: life. He yeah. wants to give a nation for all soldiers.
1: Right. So, I mean, yeah, it could be that Blitzkrieg-style strikes on bases are his thing.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's kind of interesting. In MGS4, you had a ton of, like, weapons that you can use, right? Yeah. You have this, like, real weapon porn catalog list of weapons that you can buy at any time. Yeah, it was pretty absurd. It was insane. And you've got a sort of, like, skill tree in MGS5. And I have this list. I have literally 98 items I can build right now. And I don't want to build any of them because none of them fit my playstyle. It's all like grenade launchers and rocket launchers and shields and all kinds of stuff. And I kind of want to experiment at some point. Shotguns. When am I going to use a shotgun? Yeah, I
1: saw a shotgun and a rocket launcher in Ground
0: Zeroes. And I didn't pick either one up. Yeah, I have no interest in either of those. But I only picked up silenced weapons. Right. I always pick up Silence Weapons and I gravitate towards Tranking because I'm used to playing MGS with Solid Snake. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I want to talk about other games and stuff. I wanted to
1: mention, there's one game especially that has so many spoilers in it that I, I don't even want to like talk too much about it. Okay. I played it recently. I played the whole thing in uh, in one sitting. It was Oh, the,
0: the Magic Circle.
1: The Magic Circle. Right on. I don't want to say much more than buy it, play it, and love it. It's so different from anything else that I've played.
0: Right. Just to clarify, the Magic Circle, those guys are ex-irrational guys, right? That's like right. Ex-Bioshock guys. Yes. Okay. Uh,
1: Bioshock 1 and 3.
0: 1 and in Infinite. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, the Magic Circle, it really shows their experience with those games. I, I talked to them, and this hadn't occurred to me. Just a very brief overview. The Magic Circle is a game about a game that is stuck in development hell. You play yourself, and you're like a play tester. I won't say any more than that.
0: Oh, you're a playtester. I thought you were one of the developers. Interesting. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. Okay.
1: You're basically trying to help them get back on track with, that, with completing this damn game that has been in development for like 20 years. One of the developers has a vision. It's very Peter raleigh lew Oh, interesting. Okay. He has this artiste's vision of what this game is going to be. Right. Development is just going on forever. The other lead developer wants her life back.
0: Huh, interesting.
1: But he owns her likeness rights. And she can't have them back unless they launch the game. So she wants She wants it to
0: end, right. She just wants the game to ship.
1: Yes. The dialogue is superb. It's really genuinely funny in so many places. The gameplay is clever. It's very puzzle heavy. And it's just a really great experience. And it's just the right length for a game that is extraordinarily meta. It's just the right length. Hmm. Games like that, you know, something that's meta can kind of go on for like way too long. Right. And this one is just the right length, and it goes all the right places and does all the right things. And I had such a good experience
0: with it. How does the dialogue actually appear in the game? Because you're talking about like these two developers talking, but as far as I understand it, the game takes place inside the game. They're like inside the game world talking to each other, I
1: suppose, at their computers uh, Oh, okay. On, on mics. But they're using like, you know, free-roaming eyes to move around the, the game space.
0: Okay, so they're represented by literal, like, floating eyes.
1: Giant eyeballs, yes.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That sounds really cool.
1: Yeah, it's pretty rad. That was extremely good. Lots of good dialogue between the three main leads. And I got to talk to the developers at PAX. One of the things they mentioned was that, like, it's not about their experiences at Rational. Right, right. They didn't want people to get the wrong idea, so actually, Ken Levine is a voice in the game.
0: I think that's super it's, cool. It's that's, not
1: about Ken Levine.
0: That is super cool.
1: And like that hadn't occurred to me because I thought it was pretty clear the the kind of like creators that they're talking
0: about. Well, that's the thing and is it, Ken it, that Levine seems, never struck yeah. me as that kind of person. So. Right. I mean, he seems like the, he's always struck me as the kind of guy who obviously has a vision, but is very, very good at meeting a deadline in a reasonable amount of time and shipping a solid game.
1: Yeah. I mean, the space of time between Bioshock two and three not that big.
0: Well, I mean, to be fair, Bioshock 2 was not done
1: by Irrational. Right, so. yeah, that's true. Even if you were to go between 1 and 3... 1 and 3, it's not that long. Look, It's not that long, and look at the quality of 3. Yeah. That's a game that must have taken so much work to create. Absolutely. So, so even, in, even to make that in the span of a couple of years is an incredible feat.
0: Right on. Yes, yeah, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about PAX Prime, which we just came back from in Seattle. Jplay will be right back. And we're back with Jay Play. Dan and I went to Seattle for PAX Prime. It was our first time in Seattle. Beautiful city. Really loved it. Yeah, first time in Seattle for anything.
1: I've only been to the West Coast three times now. I've been to, in the first trip, San Jose and San Francisco. In the second trip to Vancouver, and then in this trip to. Seattle. And I feel like there are a lot of similarities, not just in the weather and the environment, but just sort of like in the people as well. It's a very laid back culture. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's my first time in Seattle, but it was not my first time in the West Coast. I've been to Vancouver and San Francisco and San Diego like plenty of times. But yeah, going to Seattle was really interesting. Do you remember how angry I was when we got off the flight? Oh, yeah. You're
1: like, it's so comfortable. I'm so
0: angry about that. Because, you know, Osaka weather, I mean, it's getting cooler now thankfully oh but yeah because it rained all day long yeah right but you know i mean osaka summers are pretty terrible unbearably hot plus unbearably humid and then it decides it's going to rain some and dump on you in the middle of the day uh which makes it more humid
1: yeah people ask me all the time like being from florida you must be like totally used to all of this shitty weather right and i'm like no no no, no you're, you're getting it all wrong in florida we're not used to the weather we're just used to complaining about it
0: right <laughs> that's one of my pet peeves about osaka like i love living in Osaka. But out of all the cities that I've ever lived in, it has year round some of the worst weather. The springs are okay. Fall's fine. Yeah, for like two weeks. But each. for two weeks. They only last for two weeks each. Yeah. And summer's really long and winter's really long. You know, being from Toronto, I'm okay with the winters and stuff, but summers are absolute garbage so going to seattle it felt so great to like spend a week there sun was shining it was just fantastic weather people were complaining that it was hot which i thought was really funny yeah that was just hilarious to me but you know i mean obviously the reason we went there was for pax and you know we've done pax east twice you've now done it once right yep while we've done pax east before this is our first time doing pax prime yeah and i think if you've never been to pax pax east is interesting because pax east the boston convention center it's one block you know, so everything is all in the same place. When you say one block, you mean like one big hall, right? Right, right, right. So like the, yeah. the all of the booths for everything are in one large
1: hall, which is helpful. To me, it's really normal. Like, that's all I've ever had much experience with. Um, I right, guess, me
0: too. Except for TGS. I mean, Tokyo, TGS is different.
1: Tokyo Game Show, like, most of the stuff, you could just, like, not go to some of the other halls and you wouldn't really notice. The main hall feels like everything is there. right. Which right. is kind of unfortunate for the guys that are in the other halls because I'm sure all kinds of people overlook what's there, and usually it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, K, which I went to a couple of weeks ago as well. That is technically in, in a couple of different halls, but I went into the wrong hall last time, and yeah, bad big, stuff happened. Big big mistake. Yeah, in, yeah. In case you don't know, there's a lot of porn there. And yeah.
0: To clarify, you're talking about comic market. I, I've no, I've actually noticed something that. Um, People in the States think it's called cat So whenever you say comic, they don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, that's true. For whatever reason, people actually write it comic. K-E-T. Right. Like, right. Which K-E-T is I think A-T that's at I think
0: that's why they think
1: But that's like the normal like Romaji spelling for it, like the normal like English letter alphabet spelling for it.
0: Exactly. So when they look at it, they say, Oh, cat
1: Yeah. But yeah, k Yeah. So comic comic market is in different halls. And this last time it took me a while to wade through all of the Porn and people, so I could finally find the video games in the other hall. Yeah, well, not exactly a pleasant
0: experience. Yeah, well, I, I oh, the have the games. It. The games were great. The games are great, yeah. right? I have the catalog from last year's Comic A. <laughs> Let me tell you, the, the number of pages uh, dedicated to Transformers pornography is extensive. This is not a joke, so please don't look that up or something, because, like, that's a real- Oh, it totally exists. Please don't look it up. If you're on the internet, you probably know it exists. But, I mean, (laughs) just the number of booths that were selling stuff that was related to that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Aside from, like, a couple experiences, I'm
1: more used to a convention being in one big hall. So, PAX East was pretty normal to me, but PAX Prime is separated not only into multiple different halls, but multiple floors,
0: Right. So I mean, like, at least with Tokyo Game Show, you're talking about like five halls, but all five halls are kind of connected to each other. And there's like a throughway between them, you know, with like a smoking area and like a let's go outside and sit down and relax area and all this stuff. But like, PAX Prime, I mean, you go into the what is essentially the quote, unquote, main hall, which is where all like the big uh, AAA, like most, I guess most of the AAA publishers are. Yeah. And it looks small. Because you're not actually looking at more than probably 30% of the entirety of PAX Prime. But at it looks like this time. tiny venue. Yeah. I mean, the booths are so big, they're
1: going to be blocking out the horizon. You can't see to the other end of the hall.
0: Right. Meanwhile, like with PAX East, if you're an exhibitor, you usually go in through the front, obviously, because you don't have to wade through the lines. Then you can set up your booth early. But, you know, we go in. We go in through the front, so We go down the escalators. Yeah. And those escalators are so high up that you can see straight across the hall over every single booth. You can see everything the minute you walk in. Yeah. And And this Prime is not like that.
1: Right. There's nothing like that. You walk in through doors that are at floor level. And when you walk into the hall, there's a booth in your face. I think it's on the left was Halo 5. Right. And there's no telling what's on the other side of that because you can't see it. If I recall, to the right against the wall was Super Mario Maker. Right. But there's no way to see that because there are other booths in the way. It makes things feel much closer, much more like crowded. There are some kind of pros and cons to it. On the plus side, you can dedicate more of your attention to what's around you. And it's easier to like be engaged with the things that are going on around you. Right. But you can also get tunnel vision. It's easy to get like distracted by what's going on so that you don't end up necessarily catching up to all of the different stuff that you want to see in the entire hall.
0: Right. Well, it was really funny because somebody told me they like Prime better. And the reason they like Prime better is because unlike East, when you go into Prime, it's almost like a little like treasure maze. You know, you look around the corner and, like you're surprised by what you find. Yeah. I mean, if that's how you go to events and how, that's how you experience them, that's totally cool. That's not how I experience. I want to be like want to be able to survey and be like I want to go there and there and there and I want to check that out. Yeah, like I, I, I want like- to be I want to make a route, you know, and just kind of go around and go to see the things that I want. And if I have to explore the entire thing, There's some stuff I just never found. Yeah. Because I just did not know where it was.
1: Even for events that I go to as a fan, I want to plan things out. I want to know for sure that I didn't miss the stuff that I really wanted to see. Right, right. And yeah. There so were, There were a good number of things there. Like There was so much to see at PAX Prime that if I had gone there as a fan and not checked everything out beforehand and like had a plan, I definitely would have missed some stuff.
0: We didn't go as fans. We didn't have the luxury of just kind of wandering around and doing stuff. We I, had a booth at PAX didn't. Prime. I got to leave the booth a little bit. Yeah, so we had a booth. We had two games. We had D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die on PC, the newest windows 10 compatible build running on one side on the other side we had the newest alpha build of Lamalana 2. yeah it's the newest build that's actually up on the kickstarter so if you're a backer you can actually play that version uh, It's the first time that we're actually showing that in public mm-hmm. so that was super cool uh one of the coolest things that Negoro did for their side of the booth so we had two computers running d4 and on the other side they had one computer running on the monitor uh, for the alpha build of Lamalana 2. And then right next to it, they had opened up the Unity project. So, you know, Lamalana 2 runs on the Unity engine. And they had opened up the Unity project for Lamalana 2. It is actually the Unity project for that build. And they just opened it up in the project viewer and just put it up on the screen and said, "Hey, this is what our game looks like when we're working on it." They were not shy about letting people even like
1: mess with it. Check stuff out and there were some developers that came by and they're like, "How how did you solve this issue and how did you do this or how are you defining these objects?" And they were very cool with like people being hands-on and like kind of poking at it and like learning a little bit. You know, on the one hand, it is about sort of transparency because they have been very open with what they're doing and where they are in development with the Kickstarter. Right. But on the other hand, they're very active in development community, especially in Japan.
0: Yeah, and yeah. it
1: was cool seeing them like do the same kind of stuff in in the United States. It's just like, hey guys, you know, we're doing this and this and this, and they can kind of like connect with people and like talk about cool like dev stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's two things that I thought was incredibly cool about that. One was Japanese developers are, and actually more publishers than anything, are characteristically not super open about how they develop stuff. And it's not that they're like afraid or anything. They just that's just not how they are. They tend to just develop. And then they make the game and put it out. They don't necessarily show the behind-the-scenes that much. Yeah. So it was super cool to see them do something that even Western devs weren't doing at Prime. Like I didn't see any other devs that were showing the game running in the UE4 blueprint system, like showing off how the objects look in UE4 before they get shaded. I didn't see any of that. Yeah. So uh, it was super cool to see that. And the other thing that was super cool was to have fans come by, and even people who maybe had never heard of La Mulana. I had at least three people when I was at the booth, at least three people who came by and said, oh man, I just started using Unity. So all of a sudden there's like this connection between what they're doing, whatever project they're doing, whether it's small or large, mm. and what these you know professional indie developers are doing. And I really do think, like, I really saw their, like, eyes light up, like, oh, I just started using Unity. So there's, there's almost like this common language that all of a sudden they look at it, they're like, oh, so that's how they do this, and that's how they do that. Like, demystifying the, the development process for people who are just kind of, like, maybe either, you know, experiencing it or, like, really just dipping their toe into Unity for the first time.
1: Yeah, I felt like I was watching Nat Geo, like, developers in the wild. Right, yeah. <laughs> Look how they congregate around Unity. Yeah, it was super and cool. they speak in their native tongue. <laughs> and they're, yes. like, talking about objects and stuff. And I'm like, I don't really, like, I don't know anything about development. Yeah. Like, on the on the very technical side of things. Right. But it was cool to see that, like, they were connecting on, like, very specific solutions. Right, They're yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, so you set things up like this, too, and layers and whatnot. And, like you know i can understand very simple layman's terms but it was kind of cool getting a feel for what they're into and like what does make their eyes light up
0: but you know outside of our own booth there was a ton of amazing stuff being shown yeah what were your what were your top picks man what did you love that you saw out there so i'm going to pick one that was actually right next to us you know i mean i didn't get to leave the booth much but i got That's to see quite a bit stuff of stuff right next to us one of the games that absolutely just captivated me was Wadum. are you saying
1: that because i'm wearing a t-shirt yeah, for you're it wearing right a wathom
0: t-shirt i'm actually very jealous about that because i couldn't get a double xl i really wanted one uh, and they were just handing out shirts and I didn't have my size. But Wadam, which is developed by Takahashi Keita, the creator of Nobi Nobi Boy and, of course, Kadamari Damashi, the thing about all of his games is that they're silly and they're wonderful and they're fresh and you feel like kind of this like childlike wonderment when you play it. It's the kind of game that would appeal to the child side of you. but You'll never grow out of it. You know what I mean? Like you'll never feel like, wow, I'm too old for this game. Yeah. I never saw a single person come to that booth and be like, that's super lame. That's for kids. Like everybody was like, I want to try this. This looks super cool. So I didn't actually get to try it, but I saw a lot of people play it. And it's just this super interesting sort of semi-puzzle-solving kind of thing. About... It's kind of like a
1: logical puzzle
0: solver, right? Okay, let's start with the intro. Because the intro to that game is super dark, but super cute at the same time.
1: When I was watching the game, I'm like, this is adorable, and this is making me very happy just even watching it. But the intro is what really hooked me.
0: Yeah, so the intro is super dark. So it starts off with uh, this evil space-being gigantic-looking Cthulhu thing. Uh, but he's adorable. And his first line is, I am a bad guy. Um, And so he says, I'm a bad guy. And then he puts his tongue around planet Earth. And planet Earth is like, oh, no. And planet Earth, of course, got a face because literally everything in this world has a face. Yep. And he's like, oh, no. He's wearing a hat, like this adorable little purple derby or whatever. And then he pulls it. He's like, oh, I've got you caught. And he pulls off his derby. And there's like dynamite under there. Yeah. And then he just blows up, kills the evil space thing, and, and also destroys himself. himself, and destroys himself. He destroys himself in order to save whatever, but or maybe just to just to, to end to, it to get his or something. Yeah, I don't he's know, it's like, like, I got mine. I'm going out with a bang. Yeah, man. So it's like this <laughs> incredibly dark but silly intro that leads into the mayor living on this fragment of Earth. And he's all alone. And I think he's been all alone since he was born or something. Like something like that. Yeah. And he's like, oh, but I'm not really alone. And there's like water dripping, and you think it's like rain or something. And you look up and there's a drooling cloud. Yeah. And you know, the game just goes on from there. It's like all the characters that you meet and like how they become they've become friends with you by you using them in specific ways. Like my most and they favorite become friends with each other too, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. One of my most favorite examples is Mr. Pillow, yes. who I feel very sad that I don't remember their names because they're all named after members of the development team. Yes, Like, I remember the coffee bean, Vikram the coffee bean, I think is the name. So the pillow is sad because he can't be friends with anybody because everybody he meets and touches him falls asleep. So he's like this sad pillow standing by himself. And of course, the only way that he conquers his sleepiness by becoming friends with Vikram the coffee bean. Yeah. And it's this super silly but so adorable... Like, little stories, like, vignettes like that that make total sense. With no dialogue, I might add. It's true, yeah. The game in general has very little dialogue. It's true. He just hands him a coffee cup, right? Yes. And then he drinks it, and he's just, like, he conquered he wakes up, his he's sleeping with really He yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And then they become friends. Right. They hold hands. The whole game is making friends and then holding hands. Right,
0: exactly. Yeah, it's super cute.
1: and um, But at the same time, it has a kind of, like, a boy and his dog style, like, post-apocalyptic, you know, like, realness to it. This is my own personal interpretation from just checking out the demo, but it seems to me that the mayor has grown up alone his whole life, and so these inanimate objects in his delusion take on a personality of their own. A very somber yet really fun experience.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I guess there
1: were, there were a lot of great games at uh, at in the indie mega booth, especially though. Like indie mega booth is really fun because of the density of it. There are. What is it? Was it 72 games in that small area?
0: Something yeah, that like sounds that? about right. It doesn't feel like 72 games when you look around. It seems like less, but there's actually quite a few.
1: Well, in the, yeah, the mini booth has a huge number of games. <laughs> That's the thing probably is the mini booth has a ton of games. Yeah. yeah. Just, all of them were fantastic. I played a ton of great games. Well, I've been looking forward to this since I want to say summer of 2014. Mm-hmm. Time Spinner.
0: Time Spinner, yeah. I got yeah, to yeah. play the
1: demo for Time Spinner. It was amazing. The animation's even better than it looks in, in the GIFs and videos. Like, it's... It's super clean, smooth animation, and the gameplay is incredibly tight. That was really fun. Played Circa Infinity.
0: Yeah, Circa Infinity. I remember looking that up on Steam, yeah.
1: Which is really hard to explain. I would definitely recommend checking a video
0: for it. Just go look up the video on on Steam. Just go to Steam, look up Circa Infinity, C-I-R-C-A space infinity. Yeah. And just watch the video.
1: I think the developer calls it a mind-melting circular platformer.
0: That is very accurate. It is. That's yeah. a very accurate uh, title for it.
1: I'm just going to leave it at that. It's very stylish. It's mind-melting. It's so hectic that it's just uh, an incredibly good experience. I played Inverses, which was very close by to Circa Infinity. It was it was really funny hanging out with both Kenny and Ryan, the developers, because mm-hmm. they were being like super chummy because their games are both black and white games with a little bit of red.
0: Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah.
1: And oh, that was just that was really cute to me.
0: The the developer of Inverses, he I hope I'm not getting this wrong. He works for Bungie, right?
1: He does, yeah. Okay. He does the gameplay stuff. He's a gameplay engineer for Destiny. Okay, cool. And it, it shows in Inverses, uh, it shows that he really knows what he's doing. It's a super tight gameplay experience. It's awesome. There are some single-player modes, but the two-player mode is amazing. It's two people facing off against one another. You're on a grid of black and white squares. Uh, you yourself are a square as well, right? You yourself are a square, and you have five dots inside of you. Each dot is a bullet. When you fire a bullet, you change the orientation of the squares. So if you are white, then you can move on white squares. And if you're black, then you can move on the black squares. And the game is not just about hitting the enemy. That's how you win. But the way you lead up into the end game is by board control.
0: So trapping them in certain places by turning things the right color that you need to move Yeah,
1: so that you can move and so that they cannot. Once they run out of movement options... Then you can sort of like pin them down into a certain area where it's easier to hit them. Seriously, that's a, that game is dangerous. That, that game will give you a heart attack. I was having, like, I really feel like that was the most tense game that I played at all, at all of PAX. It was, it was incredibly tense. What did somebody call it? Go with guns? Go with guns, yeah. Or like Othello with guns? Go with guns sounds so much cooler though. I mean, go the, with guns not, sounds cool too. I just
0: figure that like perhaps like some of the listeners don't know what go is.
1: Right, go is about like creating a line of defense, creating space. It's about board control, and you win based on board control, not on destroying pieces. Othello right. is about but takeover. It is about takeover. You are constantly you you actually cannot move if you cannot take a piece. Right. Where go, you can actually win the game without ever taking a single piece. Killing the enemy is the least important part of the game.
0: Right, right, right.
1: I really, I really like that game a lot. It was a, it was a very like deep competitive experience.
0: Yeah, one of the games that I was dying to play but didn't have the chance to was Due Process. That game oh, looks
1: so cool. I was actually like, I was a little nervous to try it. I
0: didn't want I didn't to like, enough, play yeah. it in
1: public where like I could do screw some up the whole really plan. foolish stuff because with everybody watching. Right. So Due Process. Yeah. What is Due Process? So Go Due and Process
0: and. Bart, who is currently uh, handling our sound right now, he actually probably like Due Process. So Due Process is a Counter Strike style game, but they do it in a great indie style. So it's like a lot of like low res textures, low poly models and stuff, but like very stylized. And you, it is very much cops and robbers, one hit kills like in Counter Strike, but there is a planning phase. And in the planning phase, you can draw all your plan, how you're going to breach, how you're going to go through here, plan everybody's move. And once you have planned that out, you're not forced to follow it like you, some idiot on your team could just go in the opposite direction or go the wrong way or something. But in doing so in planning, seemed to me just from afar when I was watching it, it seemed to me that they wanted to make the planning phase as this important step to add cohesion to, you know, a strategy in a way that Counter-Strike usually does not. You know, Counter-Strike, everybody's just kind of jumping all over the place and going up ladders and doing whatever the hell they want to do. Rush A, guys. Yeah, they're just kind of like, they're kind of running around and like everybody's kind of a lone wolf, you know? Yeah. Same same thing in Call of Duty. Yeah. But, in due process, one, rooms are small. There's like three rooms maybe to a map. It happens really quickly. Things end really quickly. Yeah,
1: it's about storming a building, right? Right, exactly. Uh, you, You are the police
0: storming the building and the robbers are holding it. Right, Exactly. So it's very quick. Yeah. but And I don't remember, I don't know if I saw this, but I have a feeling that after the planning phase, uh-huh. when you actually start it up, the lines that you've drawn are actually, I think they actually overlay onto the ground. I'm not totally sure about Oh, that. I haven't seen that part. Okay. Uh, I'm not totally sure. I could be wrong, but I thought I saw that where it actually overlays. So you can actually see your plan. I see. So you can actually follow it. So if you are a really tight team and you know how to plan, you can just clean up a map. Like in seconds. But of course, there's the complication of you're playing, you know, four other humans. So it's four on four. Yeah, the other guys have a plan too. And who knows? Maybe they
1: shoot some critical member of your team early on.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: And then you're thrown into confusion. Yeah. And from what I saw, it looks like there's a replay function. There is. So that after things have unfolded, you can see what happened. Yeah. Where did things go wrong? What happened to the plan?
0: And you can actually see it overlaid on the planning stage screen, too, as like an overhead. Right. So you actually see, like, because, you know, when you're playing the game, you're just looking at your own view. When it actually plays out, it plays the whole map with all the enemies on top of that planning stage map. And you show, you know instantly, God damn it, Dan, why? you told you to go <laughs> left. You're supposed to hook left. <laughs> And plant that bomb. You hooked right. I don't know what you were thinking. Hey, man, I got three kills. Worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so that due process was super cool. Armello was there. They're awesome. They're always awesome. Trent and the guys are... The game is out now. It's it on, is. It's out on PS4. They had a good showing, too. A lot of people playing. A lot yeah. of people are really digging it.
1: I think, for example, maybe the best user response, I want to say, like the best like response from people coming by and like just playing the game and stuff had to be, obviously, you're going to be able to finish my sentence.
0: What? hyperlight Drifter?
1: Oh, uh, no, I mean, they were, obviously they had, a, they had amazing response. They yeah. had a huge crowd yeah. the whole time. Oh, Gang Beast. Gang Beast. Gang Beast. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, I hadn't seen the game in quite a while. They've made a lot of progress, but I was amazed I had to see the fan reaction.
0: I hadn't seen the game since it was on a random, like, giant bomb, like, quick look or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I was the last time I saw that game. So, Gang Beast was actually, like, they were set up directly across from us on the other side of the tabletop. Yeah. So, they're, you know, what, 30 feet away. Yeah. But the uproar, you could hear from people when a match finishes, was just insane. And yeah, you can tell because they had this huge big screen. You know, it wasn't a bunch of tiny computers. Mm-hmm. Big, big screen so everybody can see when they're passing by, like, what's going on. That game is, is super cool. And the, the Bonelove like guys. It was
1: too, the, uh, the uproars. Oh, it totally was. Because the matches are always about, you know, 15 to 30 seconds. Yeah. And it takes maybe three or four matches for some insane upset to happen
0: exactly so about
1: every i don't know every two minutes or so there's like a huge uproar of like oh damn
0: yeah the bone love guys especially are incredibly cool guys we mm-hmm. had a chance to hang out with him for a little bit yeah my my new twitter avatar uh, drawn by john brown from uh from bone love which is super cool yeah it's pretty hilarious it's a hilarious avatar those guys are so down to earth they love their game and the game the game itself is super simple in terms of the controls actually it's it's just what is l1 r1 for the two hands right
1: yeah tap to punch uh hold to grab and then trying to lift above your head and then x to jump right that's That's it everything
0: that's it that's everything in the game those four buttons
1: yeah and you end up being able to do some pretty deep stuff like getting like of course there's some like kind of wacky stuff that happens too but like you it's one of those like a minute to learn lifetime to master kinds of games i think
0: right so okay i have to ask so the punching in the game yeah When you are punching, is it in order... Are you weakening something, or are you knocking them down, or...
1: some kind of hidden life bar.
0: Okay. Uh, You can knock people out. Right, okay. I have seen that. And it seems
1: to me that, like, by stomping on people's hands, you can also, like, mess with their grip. Right, okay. So there was, like, a really, really... It's actually, like, a surprisingly dark game. There's a, a series of levels that have to do with meat, and the first in the series is this level with these guardrails. You're walking on these, like, metal planks. Right. And there are these, these handrails uh, that block you off from these paper shredder-looking meat grinders.
0: All right, so there's the, there's the catwalk above, and then you can knock people off into the meat grinder. Into
1: the meat grinders, and then
0: they can get ground up, and then,
1: you know, that's one stage. And then another stage is this one with some, with some trap doors that, you know, are kind of, like, spring-loaded. Mm-hmm. And these sausages fall from the sky and can, uh, like, knock right. you down in there. And if you fall through the trap doors, then you die. But the sausages are obviously coming
0: from the stage before. Right. So it's very clear that those two stages are actually, like, intimately connected. Yeah. It's obvious that— In the darkest way possible. Right. So those are old gang beast contestants coming down as sausage.
1: Yes. And then you have another level where you're fighting, like, 90s action movie style on top of these two uh, semi-trucks. And they're shipping trucks for meat companies.
0: That is actually my favorite stage. So like that was pretty intense. That stage is the one that when I saw them do on giant bomb, I was like, "All right, that's the stage of me on the game." Like that. Oh, okay. That really was because it was like you know you're hanging off the side of a truck and people are like jamming your your hands and they're trying to get you off and then you know you kind of disappear for a second yeah. because of the view. Yeah. And then you just see your body like roll back past the cars yeah, behind you, get you,
1: like crunched by the uh, the trucks behind.
0: Yeah, it's uh, that's a great stage. I yeah, really like yeah. the design of that one. Yeah, it's
1: fun. It's it's fun. It's exciting.
0: It's like the stakes are high. It's a cool stage. A lot of gang beasts reminds me of Power Stone, but oh, yeah, totally. but a more open-ended. as far as the, like the game like the fighting mechanics go. Yeah. A far more open-ended Power Stone.
1: Yeah, I mean it's really like very simple in terms of like controls, but it's all physics-based. Right. So there's a lot of stuff being handled kind of like in the background.
0: Right, 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 yeah. right. So the punching,
1: I was noticing that a lot of people focus on, on on grabbing, but I was noticing that the punching can be really fun, too. Yeah. A lot of people will, like, grab with one hand and then punch with the other. Right. And I had this really good moment in one of the stages. Uh, it was the meat grinder one on the walkways up on mm-hmm. top where I had gotten one of, one of my opponents, their, like, toe had been stuck in the meat grinder. And they're at that point. If they can jump enough times, they might actually get out. Right. So I'm on the other side of the fence and I'm just reaching over and I'm punching them with both hands like bah, 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 bah. get in there just get back in there like <laughs> and it was so dark because you could see me with both fists there's like there's no there's no defense involved he's not yeah. like there's no bobbing or weaving involved I'm yeah. just punching the shit out of this guy just trying to get You're him, just stuffed, to stuff him back stuffed into, into, meat into the rider. meat grinder it was so dark. And it's just so messed up. It was a really good time, and then afterwards you'd hold a triangle and get your get your arms up in the air and just kind of like swing around in like a goofy victory dance.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Was there anything outside of the indie stuff in general that you saw that you thought was cool? Are we counting indies that are published by other moderate sized indie <laughs> publishers? Uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But I know, I know you do. No, actually, if, we, if, we, if we venture outside of that, there are a couple of things that look really interesting. I didn't get to play them, but I am severely interested. But We'll come back to what I know you're talking about in just a second. But yeah, sure. I'm just curious if you saw anything that was like AAA that you thought was interesting. Dreadnought looks
1: really cool to me. Dreadnought looks super cool. I really want to try that out. And I think it's very rare that cause they're getting such a good response. Uh, that's the second time I've seen it on show. The other time being at Pax East. Pax East, yeah. And they get such a good response out of people, and that surprises me a lot because it's it's not a fast paced game. It's not. Everything these days is so like stimuli overload, right? But Dreadnought is a slow, thoughtful game. Yeah. It's not like you're even micromanaging a ton of different units. You get one ship, right? Yeah. One you, ship, and then you micromanage that one
0: ship. Yeah, you're micromanaging all the guns and stuff, and your your movement is super slow. But it's slow in the coolest way. It's slow in the way that you imagine like a realistic multiplayer sub-simulator would be like. Mm-hmm. Like as tense as that. Yeah. Where, you know, you're just like, oh, I could catch fire at any moment, but I just need to like slowly get behind this mountain and then I'm totally okay. The one game that I really wanted to, to see at PAX Prime that I didn't get to, uh-huh. but I kept passing by the booth like every time that I left our booth. Can I try to guess? Sure. Super Mario Maker. No, actually, because that no. one's amazing. That, that game looks amazing. It looks amazing, but that's not what I was thinking of. Okay, uh, it was Street Fighter Five. Uh, oh, of because because Capcom's booth is like was right there in yeah. the middle, like between that you know in that concourse where there's you know like uh, some board game stuff and the mm-hmm. the geek Chic guys were there. Yeah, uh, in that sort of concourse, like Capcom was basically facing there. So like Street Fighter Five, I was constantly looking at, and they had just announced a new character ArmiKa Rainbow Mika. They had announced. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember because I was reading the news when we were setting up for the booth i was reading the news that day yeah. in the apartment that we were staying at mm-hmm. and then when we arrived at the show and capcom was turning on the all the computers mm-hmm. or all the ps4s to show yeah. off uh, the game yeah i was like they've already got her like this build already has armika in there that's super cool that's cool that is cool but i wanted to play it and i just didn't get a chance uh, which was unfortunate but it was it was a lot of fun to like check it out
1: they had a good booth too like they had one set up for sort of like showcase games or whatever where they had you know that's hooked up to the tv network and yeah. they were like, everybody's able to watch that on the
0: closed circuit. That yeah. was cool. That was neat. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was good for spectating. While we're on the topic of uh, fighting games, uh, Rivals of Ether was there. That's true. Yeah. Rivals of Ether was there. Dan Fornace, who's the lone vision behind that game, he um, is. He does everything.
1: Uh, He was there from art to tech, everything. It was super cool to meet him. was a very nice guy. Yeah, nice guy. Younger than I expected. Yeah, he's incredibly good at his game. Should not be surprising, but it was cool watching him play against guys that are clearly very into what he's doing. You'd be surprised Uh, how many people are actually professional streamers who play and win Smash tournaments. Right, they right. were having a great time with this game. These guys were, like, loving it. They were really into, into rivals. And one of the things that I think is most remarkable about it is that Dan is very aware of the challenges involved in balancing a game for multiple game modes. And Smash, like, they circumvent the hardcore competitive balancing uh, to a degree by saying that it's not meant for that kind of play. But then but Dan the opposite. But that means that they're trying to balance four-player free-for-alls, two-on-two matches, with and without team damage on. They're trying to balance one-on-ones, you know? All of those are such different scenarios. In the case of Rivals of Aether, everything is balanced purely for one-on-one. One-on-one.
0: That's what. Yeah, that's what Dan told me when I was talking to him about it, because I was very curious about how they were balancing it.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of ashamed that that I never even considered that, because that seems to me like the obvious way to do it. Right. A Smash-like game that's made for competitive play and balance specifically for 1v1 seems like a guy have a lot of... Well, I mean, obviously, actually, uh, Rivals has a lot more potential than I even realized. I had played the alpha before. Right. But Dan and the guys that he's playing with who play the alpha a lot, clearly. Clearly, yeah. They can do all these amazing things with it. And the combos that they pull out and the zoning that they do and the, the footsies involved, it's all very technical and very great for spectators. It really is good to watch.
0: Interesting to note that when you and I played Rivals of Ether when we got the alpha build, we were playing one-on-one only, actually. Yeah. That, that was mostly because we only had two controllers, but we were probably getting the most pure Rivals of Ether experience by doing that. The, the fact of the matter is, like, four-player... I've always liked four-player in Smash like games, so I'm sure it's going to play really well. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that if you balanced for 1v1 then four player is going to be hopefully fun if a little unbalanced
1: yeah, fun, but like even in Smash I would say that four player free for all games are in general just kind of like they're kind of chaotic experiences and that's what draws people in anyway.
0: Right. And there's too many so variables. Why to balance actually, for that? Well there's too many variables, right? To to actually balance a four player match. Yeah, that's true too. Balancing for one v one makes a lot of sense because that's what there's that's where balance is required, right? Like that's yeah. that's where everybody's like this is not balance, is when they're looking at one v one. Yeah, totally. There's one thing I want to talk about. It's not actually a game, but it was at Pax Prime. And it was gigantic, and everybody was taking pictures of it. Oh! I was, I
1: was going to be like, is it a sandwich? Yeah. The sandwiches are, sandwiches <laughs> the sandwiches are so was...
0: good. Oh, those burritos were fantastic. Yeah. Those burritos were good. But no, Dark Souls 3. There was a giant Dark Souls 3 booth. I wanted to go play it so badly. Uh, I, I know. and I, I remember when I found it, I swung back to our booth, and I was just like, hey, man, do you know? Dark, Dark Souls 3 is here. You should go try it. But That's the evil, like devil voice on my shoulder. I know, uh, but what I didn't <laughs> realize until until after was when we found. Well, a bunch of people told us about it first. The I actually stumbled across it before you. It even told you me found it, right. Where, you found it, and I hadn't seen it because I wasn't able to leave the booth. Yeah, the Dark Souls blood fountain. Would you call it a blood fountain?
1: I I only call it a blood fountain.
0: It's basically, the fountain itself is like this rock formation. Yeah. It's sort of a dish of sorts to make sure that stuff doesn't flow out of it. Yeah, that's true. And then you've got this knight, I guess. Yeah, there's like Uh, a knight. He looks like he's dressed as a knight, uh, and he's sort of on his knees, and in front of him is this dead zombie or or demon of some sort. Sort of like nondescript, you know, zombie-looking thing. Yes. With a sword plunged directly into its stomach, And just black liquid just shooting upwards, like shooting out. Yeah. And it's like this—it's a fountain. It acts exactly as a normal water fountain would work, except it's like this black bloods-type
1: liquid shooting out in front of this awesome background too. There's these like castles and these ramparts in the background, and it's like this over-the-top, insanely epic scenario. In, in the foyer where everybody just comes in to, like, you know, register and, like, get their passes and stuff. I know. <laughs> it was just like, just...
0: doing all this random normal stuff. Yeah, it's, like, right in front of, like, the Penny Arcade PAX merch booth. Yeah. <laughs> and you got this, like, fountain where this demon is just eternally spilling blood upwards out of his chest. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing... I, intense. I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Trent from, from League of Geek was saying this, but... He saw this, like, really sad picture of, like, this janitor just, like, wiping down that zombie at the end of the day. Because it's just, like, cause he had to clean it. You know? Yeah, of they, they course. Clean it. And because it's black liquid, I'm Surely, sure Surely, because they, were, they
1: used it at, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Gamescom?
0: They might have done that, yeah. But it was just really funny, just the idea of this, like, janitor cleaning this gigantic zombie-looking thing <laughs> of all of its black blood that has been spilling everywhere. It's just... It was just absolutely silly. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous.
1: My two, in general, my two favorites were probably uh, a Hyperlight Drifter and this one. It's called uh, Death's Gambit.
0: Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm a little out of the loop in terms of, like, how popular games are with the general populace. Like, I have no idea if anybody knows about Death's Gambit right now. I hope it's getting some circulation in, in terms of, like, sites and stuff right now. As far as I know, it's getting some, but
1: it's still really early. Because he hasn't actually released a public demo yet. He's, right. He's shown it,
0: at the very least, at a couple of shows. I saw it and played it first at Pax East. See, the thing is, I saw, I saw a trailer, like, I, ca- I saw a couple like gifs articles, maybe like a trailer uh, on a couple different sites, probably like two months ago. Hmm. But that's all I've seen of it, like as far as like what people would be able to consume on the Internet, like, that's, that's all I had seen that was public.
1: Right, and it's actually, I feel like it's hard to get uh, a fix on what the what exactly the game is from just the GIFs and videos. In the beginning, I thought it was going to be a, a Metroidvania game mixed with Shadow of the Colossus in 2D.
0: Which it is not at all. It's not at all. It's,
1: it's actually much more close to Dark Souls mixed with Shadow of the Colossus in 2D. It's 2D Dark Souls. It really is 2D Dark Souls.
0: I haven't seen any of the, the
1: Colossus type stuff, but apparently that's going to be a big part of the game.
0: Well, I would say, I, I think it's super funny that it's 2D Dark Souls because for years, literally years... It's not hyperbole. For literally years, people have been calling La Mulana 2D Dark Souls. And I think it's such a misnomer because people say it's... it's just because it's hard. Right. And that, that's why I call it a misnomer. Like, it's, yeah. I don't think it's right to call it that because it's like, well, it's really hard. And it's like, well, that doesn't make it Dark Souls. That just makes it hard. Yeah, there are very specific aspects of
1: Dark Souls that make it what it is. You know, animation locks are a big part of it. The stamina part is, like, crucial.
0: Well, And that's the thing. Death Gambit really is 2D Dark Souls. Like, it's a yeah. Dark Souls-like. It has... One of the things that I love about it, which you know, is not maybe readily apparent when you see like videos of it, yeah. is that you are picking up or gaining stats that I don't understand, which is totally Dark Souls. Yes. Oh, I just got two hope. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that
1: mean? I what does that mean? I, I still haven't, like, I've played some that's Game, and I still have no, no idea what hope is. But
0: the, well, there is no hope. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, but for real, like that's so Dark Souls, like you know, humanity. Humanity is a is a like kind of a currency, kind of a stat. Yeah, or like and, or insight into Bloodborne, like in Bloodborne, yeah. stuff like that. Like I like that concept. Where I'm like, I don't really know what this means, and by playing, I start to understand. Yeah, or if you're playing, like I'm playing
1: Demon Souls right now, and oh sweet, I got two higher in like slashes to like horizontal slashes. Great, you know, it's like yeah, what is that? <laughs> On first look, there aren't even names attached to
0: these things. It's just a bunch of like funky symbols. Yeah, I mean, Demon Souls was was especially like sort of esoteric and sort of black like, uh, box-ish. Yeah, it was very opaque. In that sense. It was very, very much so. Very, very much so. Yeah, Death's Gambit. I'm not sure like how some of like the
1: the deeper system aspects of it are gonna go. I don't know how it'll be to like play it when you're playing like in the long term, right? Right. But the the very micro level of it is is was incredibly fun. It feels very very much like Dark Souls. It was very risk versus reward, mm-hmm. reading your enemies' patterns. If you can't read the telegraphs, you're definitely going to die. From Software creates a brand new world for you to explore. And it feels dense. It feels real. There's so much to explore there. And Alex was talking about, he was talking about filling the space because he's be working with a 2D space instead of a 3D space. And in Bloodborne and whatnot, you know, if you want verticality, you build your model tall. Right. Well, you have three dimensions to build in, and Alex is only working with two. So there are some strategies that you can use in order to fill that space. But he has to do it if he wants to make a room with a ledge, like coming into the into the room and in the top left. Well, now he can't just have like top left and top right. All of that stuff in the middle. In the uh, for example, if the uh, if this room is two screens tall, then all of that stuff in the second row of screens in the top. There needs to be some kind of content there. It can't just be empty or that's kind of... Right, right,
0: right. This is
1: this is an indicator of how thorough he is, but he he seemed to consider that kind of lazy or something. Hmm, interesting. Uh, not his words, but like that's the feeling that I got from what he was saying. And that really like struck home with me because I, I, I love it when creators are so thorough. I love it when they are dedicated to doing something all of the way.
0: Right, right. Which is kind of what you have to do if you're making a make a soul style game.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and it helps him... With with an art style like his, it helps him breathe life into it. It helps him like make this creation uh, his and only his. You know what I mean?
0: Word. Yeah. No. I I really like the game. It's fantastic. I really wish I'd had a chance to play it, but hopefully we'll we'll have a chance soon.
1: Yeah. I'll be I'll be looking forward to actually playing it whenever there's a a, a build available.
0: Yeah. So unfortunately, we are running super short on time. Our next episode, we're going to talk about TGS, and we'll have more actual players and stuff to talk about. It was really, I think, a good chance for us to talk about Pax Prime. Get get right back in the swing of things. Yeah. So, to wrap things up, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. The official Playism Twitter is Playism EN. That's EN for like English. So, Playism EN. And on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Playism. The Japanese Playism, if you want to follow that, if you understand Japanese, then you should definitely check it out. It's at Playism JP. And then the Facebook is the same. We share the Facebook with the Japanese side. My Twitter is at the trin, t h e t r i n, and you can see John Brown's fantastic avatar of me. It is quite hilarious. It, it is. It's pretty excellent. It's a. Uh, it's very accurate.
1: It's very accurate. And you can follow myself at DNA Noodle. That's noodle as in like
0: spaghetti noodles. Word. We'll be back as soon as possible, but until then, we'll catch y'all later for another episode of J Play the players and podcast. See you next time. See ya.